Voice of Fintech. Welcome to Voice of Fintech, a podcast mapping out the Swiss and global fintech scene, connecting fintech enthusiasts with startups, incubators, accelerators, business angels and VCs, and incumbents interested in partnerships. Voice of Fintech will help you navigate the fintech ecosystem. Here you can listen to the startup founder stories, what investors and incumbents are looking for when dealing with startups, and find out more about resources provided by incubators and accelerators. My name is Rudy Fallad and I'll be hosting this podcast. So hello and welcome to Voice of Fintech. Today we're talking to Barbot, who is the partner at HV Capital in Germany. And we're going to find out more about how this leading VC is thinking about investments in the fintech space on the spot or in the startup space in general. What is the scene in terms of VC investments looking like in, uh, in Europe these days uh, versus Europe and other parts of the world? Let's just dive into it. Thank you, Barbot, for joining. How are you today? Very good. And thanks so much for having me. Great. Thank you for joining. And uh, well, my first question typically is, and uh, I think the answer is always so different and amazing. How did you get to do what you do today at HV Capital? Sure. Yeah, it's always I can give you the very linear story and it all makes sense or, or make it a bit more exciting with a bit more bumps in the road. And I think the latter is probably of, of more interest. So let me go quickly through my personal journey first. Uh, so having uh, been born in Germany, I my, my personal journey brought me through Italy, where I grew up and, and I went to school, the UK, where I lived over a decade, the US, where I did my MBA and ultimately settled in Munich, Germany. And professionally, I, I started with a software engineering degree in London at Imperial College. So uh, probably finance wasn't what I had in mind when I was a teenager. But coming out of that, I went straight into the investment route or line of work, having joined the trading desk, interest rate the trading desk at City. Uh, and from there, followed into direct investments into a small PE shop in London, where I uh, was covering telco infrastructure investments. And following my MBA in New York at Columbia Business School, I then moved into the world of VC, where I've been for the last 10 years. So if you were to summarize it, so I've always been an investor, and that's my passion, what I like doing. And, and I went through from the public markets to late stage private to then finding my real passion into early stage. Great. I think it's pretty linear, to be honest, but fair enough, right? It's not like you were an actor who became no. a, a venture investor like Ashton Kutcher. I saw him <laughs> on some video chat uh, the other day. So can you tell us a bit more about HV Capital? Obviously, a lot of people in the ecosystem know it, but for the people who are, let's say, unconverted, they maybe heard it in passing what do you do? What's your focus and where are you based? Yeah, sure. So HP Capital, to start, we're based out of Berlin and Munich. And who are we? We are a pan-European multi-stage fund. We were fo- founded in 2000. So by European standards, we've been around uh, the block for quite, quite some time and are in our eighth uh, fund generation currently. We tend to invest early and that's our DNA. But what's uh, great in working with us is that we can really be a partner throughout the life cycle of companies all the way to late stage rounds. So that multi-stage approach allows us to keep investing and keeping a partner and not just stopping after the first investment. The mandate is a generalist one. 
So mm-hmm. for whoever has seen our website, we have a very broad and diverse, diversified portfolio. And in, within this journalist mandate, at the partner level, we tend to focus uh, more or less. And personally, I'm one of the probably more vertically focused uh, partners, given that fintech is a very broad space. And we define it also very broadly to include B2B, B2C, and software companies that sell into financial institutions. So that's my area of expertise. Right. And uh, maybe just a little not so relevant question, but interesting for me, why in Munich? I think, sorry to say, I think I prefer Munich to Berlin. (laughs) <laughs> but if you think about startup scene, everybody's talking about uh, Berlin rather than Munich. So I guess it's a personal choice, right? It goes back sort of to when we started, right? So we have offices in Munich and Berlin, but really when we started in 2000, if you look back at Berlin in 2000, it, it definitely wasn't what it is today. And innovation and, and tech was probably focused around Munich and, and, and somewhat Ham- Hamburg. And even to date, if you look at pure tech from a corporate perspective, Munich is still the hotbed of that, uh, whether you're talking about American multi-corporations or even the German tech, the automotive industry, a lot of that revolves around uh, around Munich. But obviously, Berlin has taken the center stage when it comes purely to startups. And uh, given that we, we are dynamic and involved with the market, we promptly opened an office in Berlin, which has been growing very strongly. And for me personally, I think covering fintech, uh, I bounce around Europe and, and in the pre-COVID and hopefully post-COVID world, I'll, I'll start again spending plenty of time in London, in Amsterdam, in Berlin. So really, Munich is, is home base and, and it's where I live, but my week is spread across Europe. All right. I understood. Makes sense. So you mentioned that you started in the year 2000, right? So there are some founders who were barely born back then, right? So it is a great uh, track record, two decades, right? So how much money have you raised since inception? And how many startups did you invest? Not necessarily exactly, but uh, roughly. So we, we have an idea of scale over those two decades that you've been operating. Yeah, as you mentioned, we've been around for 20 years. Uh, we, we are very fortunate to have uh, supportive LPs that uh, have grown with us throughout this journey. And as of today, we have raised in excess of 1.7 billion euros um, across eight funds, with the current fund being a 535 million euro fund. When you asked me about the number of startups, to give you a ballpark figure, we invested in north of 200 startups across those years across industries and geographies. And that has changed over time as well, because as mentioned, we used to be a consumer internet fund in the early stages of our life, a focus on German-speaking Europe, and that mandate expanded throughout the years with a more balanced split between B2B and B2C and geographies across Europe. Right. So you did mention the agnostic or before general, generalistic funds, but still, I guess you have done more deals in certain sectors than the others, right? So you started with, with consumer internet. You are obviously focusing on fintech. What are the types of uh, verticals you cover or then also within those verticals what kind of startups have you invested in maybe in terms of uh, life cycle or technology and geography as well sure let me maybe start by talking about the fund and when we and then we can zoom in on on myself so from a Fun perspective, as said, so you have a first 10 years where it was all about consumer internet. And then we, we spun out of that model 
restructure ourselves to be business model agnostic and and over the past probably like it is it's been way more balanced b2b b2c and uh, we invest across verticals with some exceptions to make an, exa- an example uh, biotech we don't do and that's not in our mandate but overall it's pretty broad and if you look at the last few years if I were to pick a few sectors that definitely have seen a lot of activity, fintech is definitely one, but we could mention shared economy, the travel sector, logistics has been a very important one from a capital allocated standpoint, as well as B2B SaaS and digital health there. We're seeing a big uh, sort of tailwind and macro macro trend uh, in Europe. So yeah, that, that's a bit to answer the, the from a fund perspective. If I were to zoom in on on fintech, which is uh, the topic of the day, and and then we'll touch upon the life cycles and size, tech, geography, etc. If you look at our portfolio, I think I can categorize it broadly in three buckets. There is B2B2C and B2B. Sorry, B2C, B2B2C, and B2B. And if we start with B2C, a couple of names that that definitely stand out uh, might be Box and Scalable Capital. And they fit very well in our thesis of Europe sort of maturing when it comes to retail investing. And we're seeing a a big tailwind in that. On the B2B2C side of things, we are very bullish on the um, SME economy. And maybe two two investments to highlight there would be sum up the card readers and Penta as an SME neobank. Uh, and lastly, on the B two B side of things, and that's a central topic for me currently, and something I'm, I'm spending a lot of time on, is the whole banking infrastructure side of things and, and the reinvention or re-engineering thereof. And there, if I were to pick a couple, we are investors in, in Solaris Bank, which is a banking as a service company out of Berlin, um, right. and, and Yapili in the open banking space API layer. From a size perspective, and again, talking about myself, I could say that I'm stage agnostic within the early stages so anything from pre-seed to series b and i take a bit more of a portfolio approach in order to have the most impact within my portfolio so at any point in time i tend to have a good balance between early mid and later stage companies within my personal portfolio all right, that's uh, interesting. Sometimes the VC says it's a round or more, right? Nothing earlier. So that's good, I think, for the founders to know. Now, how do you find them? How does the scouting and due diligence then work? What I mean by this is what I'd like to know is, well, obviously a lot of investors say, well, we've been around for a long time. Everybody knows us. We've got so much inbound. We don't know what to do with it. That's one way to do it, right? And then you can be also proactive. And the question is, okay, how how are you doing it? And do you search through using some in-house AI tools or external ones as well to come up with a long list? And then you check the founders, etc. Obviously, very early stage, that's a critical point, right? Who are the founders and or co-founders? But there are also investors who basically say, if you really read through between the lines, that they're just invest in friends of their friends or friends of their founders of portfolio companies. And uh, then there are also people who say, well, that's why these founders look like the investors in the VC. In other words, it's always a couple of uh, white males, right? But how is it uh, for you? Uh, is this more inbound driven or that it's a mixture of with the proactive as well? And then how do you make sure that you 
get the best ideas rather than you would fall for to a home bias? If my answer would have been we rely on inbound, we wouldn't have been around for 20 years. So it's definitely not that. If And, and I'll take this question from a personal perspective and each partner might have a slightly different philosophy. But the way I work is that I'd li- I like to think of my approach as top down first and bottom up bottom up second and what i mean by that is that very hypothesis and investment thesis driven so i like to form before i even look at a certain startup or or speak to specific founders i like to form my top trends hypothesis or whatever macro macro teams i want to follow or i think that are the next big things in fintech once I'm, I'm through with that analysis, and that's obviously a moving target, and, and new teams come and some slip off that list. But uh, once I have my top couple or top three, I then switch to a bottom-up approach, meaning that within that area of interest, I like to at least try to speak with every relevant founder in Europe. And at any given point in time, within a certain space, there's bound to be 5, 10, 20 companies pursuing it. And from that analysis and from those meetings, then come to decision of, A, do I want to back one of these teams or should I keep looking? And B, at what stage do I feel most comfortable within this team? For the sourcing itself in the scouting process it takes many different layers obviously it's easy to say i want to speak to everyone but but how does one go about it, especially in the very early stages so the obvious answer is that both my personal as well as the funds network by now 20 years in are very broad so they do play a crucial role in getting me in front of the right teams so it might be angel networks, it might be founders that we backed before, it might be network contacts, et cetera, et cetera. And over the past few years, we have seen an emergence of more and more automated scouting as well through in-house built tools. And what I mean by that is without going into AI or too fancy word, as simple as crawlers, it already complements the whole process a lot. Looking at LinkedIn, which people have changed their status to stealth or founder or in a, starting a new company, crawling company house filings, uh, which companies have, have been founded when? Do they already have investors on the shareholder registry? All these things can be automatized and, and true smart filtering through constant crawling through constant uh, looking you can then create sublift sublists and distribute them internally and see where they fit in the grand scheme of the of the sourcing and and the constant work that we do in finding the best teams Right. I mean, I like that the thesis that you said, top down first, bottom up second. And for everybody listening, we didn't rehearse this before. But I think really, this is the best answer, which is correlated with your 20 year track record, right? If you are maybe starting out, and you used to be a business angels club who used to invest on your own, and then you keep on doing the same thing. In other words, you just investing in friends of friends. I don't think this is a long term approach that works. And here's the proof, right? That's why you're in business for so long because you're doing it a lot much more comprehensively so that's great now 
a lot of the debate about or the buzzword or maybe it's a politically correct way of uh, saying what's going on in fintech has been about cooperation right maybe that's b2b and the incumbents and things like this but also it's the ecosystem hub leaders and incubators and accelerators so i just wanted to know if you actively work with them or this is something in parallel and rather the incubators are there to work with the corporate sponsors and the startups but you guys have a direct access and direct approach and you don't really need it and also there may be other there are other intermediaries that may be or may not be as helpful like uh, professional firms or consultants are they or again you don't really need them and you, you do this outreach uh, directly? Yeah, good question. Let me divide it. So I'm, I'm going to touch upon the investment side of things, then cooperation in a business operational perspective, and then we can move to service providers. All right. If I hit the first bucket I on the investment side, if we abstract for a second from HV, I think that every fund investor operates on a certain snapshot of a time continuum that is the life cycle of the company. Then depending where this fund is positioned, it will have some relationships preceding it and some relationships following it that are absolutely crucial. And what I mean by that is if we take HV Capital, for instance, we come in quite early and invest throughout the growth stages. So for us, who comes before us? Mainly the angels. So it's crucial to have a very strong angel network that can feed us deals and and where we can be the ones that follow them after they did a pre-everything investment and the investment is reaching maybe a seed stage. And on the other side of the spectrum, have very strong relationships to the large growth pockets, to the PEs, etc., who come in at the point where our maximum investment is maxed out, but the company still has a lot of uh, room to grow. So these are the ones that are complementary to us and plug into that time continuum that is the life cycle of the company. In, in, In the space where we operate, there is always some competition, some collaboration. Obviously, you're competing for the best deals, but... In whichever company you are, chances are that the cap table is going to become over time or from the beginning a syndicated cap table, meaning that you are working with other investors to grow this company. So again, it's very important to have open, strong, good relationships with your peers because that allows you also to, to build very powerful syndicates and not just make them happen by randomness. On your cooperation in a business sense, question i would say that we are living through a very interesting transition in fintech if you dial back five six seven years the narrative was very much us against them fintechs against banks fintechs are going to take over banks are going to die the reality is that's not the case it hasn't been the case and it won't be the case there is an inherent collaboration where both sides play a role. The banks have a lot of knowledge when it comes to compliance, regulatory aspects, back office, depth of their balance sheet, depth of their structure and capacity. The fintechs, on the other hand, have are way more nimble, faster to acquire customers, way more digitally savvy. And we are changing the narrative to a we we together as opposed to mm-hmm. against each other. And we'll see how that works out. But definitely, we are in a way more collaborative environment now than we were 
five, six, seven years ago. And lastly, from a service provider's perspective, we don't use them to source per se. We use them to help us mainly for due diligence processes. So we have legal, tech, and, and finance the partners that we use frequently or to structure the rounds or even post investment to help the founders set up the finance department or clear up some legal questions, help with regulatory filings, etc. All right, understood. And uh, you mentioned about how flexible you are in terms of stages where you invest and things like this and some numbers about your funds or the latest funds. So obviously that dictates the minimum size of the ticket, right? Yeah. In terms of a range. So what is it if I cannot calculate the top of my head what it could be? And then in terms of a board seat and things like this, of course, a lot of people are happy with observer seat and they take a portfolio approach so they cannot be on every single board. But how about you? And then lastly, how much time do you think it takes these days to exit and make a meaningful return? To the last one, longer and longer, but in a positive way. But let me come to that. To, to start and then tackle the question in, in the order you asked, we are long-term partners. And generally, we come in early and, as said, we can act across multiple rounds. If you were to ask what's the bread and butter, what we do, we come in early, it can be as little as a few hundred thousand euros in a pre-seed case, but usually let's frame it in the one to five million euro bucket in a seed, pre-seed, late seed, whatever you want to call it, and grow from there. A peculiarity, however, of our last fund, this current generation, is that we added a direct growth pocket as well. So beyond our usual way of investing, we are now also able to come in directly with a 10 to 20 million euro ticket into a series B or C, for example. Once the investment is meaningful, and meaningful can be a percentage ownership or can be a, from a capital allocated perspective, then by all means, we, we tend to seek a board representation in line with us trying to drive the business forward, trying to be a partner for a long time and, and participate across, across multiple rounds. And as with fund mathematics, the bigger the fund, the bigger the expected returns have to be. And that's no exception also for us. With a half a billion plus fund, we have to believe that at point of investment, if all stars align and the hypothesis stack stacks up as we think it, it does, there has to be the potential for a multi-hundred million return for the fund. So if we reverse engineer that, if our shareholdings are in the 15 to 25% range, more or less in, in, in the typical cases, then you are talking about companies that have to have billion dollar plus potentials to return over 100 million or rather hundreds of millions for the fund. Great. That's what I wanted to hear because a lot of the early stage startups sometimes on the continent are, I think, not ambitious enough, uh, frankly, right? And they, they need to understand this economics. So if you were to talk to a VC, you need to be ambitious. This is a technology-led business. So frankly, it should scale up quite quickly if there is a product market fit, right? You don't need to build factories around the world and ship the boxes of stuff. People can use your service anywhere. Obviously, fintech being regulated as well, that could be something that can slow it down. But great yeah, to hear about the scale that you've been operating at, yeah. Exactly. And, and the beauty of that is, again, if, if we go back 10, 15 years, maybe it wasn't so much a lack of ambition, but it was a lack of means. Entrepreneurs in Europe just didn't have access 
to the big rounds they have today in the private markets with a few exceptions. Today, I think with the past years and more and more large IPOs coming out of Europe, there is an acceptance that Europe is is growing up to become a very meaningful tech hub within the world. And with that comes a lot of capital as well, which is allowing the entrepreneurs to have way bigger visions, way bigger ambitions, which maybe 15 years ago, they just couldn't have unless they moved to, to the US or Asia. Right. I think, of course, it's changing for the better. So let's uh, keep it that way. Now, you mentioned some of the names of your investments, but maybe if you pick uh, just a handful and paint a picture or a case study that you're the most proud of, what is the success story that you would like to brag about at the cocktail party? I, I think deviate or, or skip answering this, not to pick a child above others and, and rather give the uh, yeah, yeah, of course. You know, just <laughs> saying I, I push it yeah. to one or two. Yeah. What, what I would do is maybe do a more journalistic comment on our fintech portfolio and say that it's growing very fast. There's a lot of momentum and, and it has come out of a year where whereas at the beginning we might have expected things to go badly. In reality, it has been a net beneficiary in a grand scheme of things because the financial sector as a whole is getting a huge sorry, need and push to digitize itself. So the fintech portfolio probably as a whole is benefiting a lot from that need in the market. And if I were to pick examples within the names and, and the buckets that we mentioned above, let's take, for instance, retail investments and has been a huge topic in this year. And you have two companies in our portfolio, Box and Scalable Capital, that have benefited a lot from that with Box reaching almost four or over 400,000 brokerage accounts open by, by now. Scalable Capital having over $2 billion under management in its robo-advised product. Similarly, you have had a push away from cash in continental Europe, initially because people didn't want to touch cash and got moved away from cash economy into, into digital payments and card transactions. And obviously, SumUp is a huge beneficiary from that and that they do card reading machines. Companies are taking the whole trend of banks and, and corporates trying to offer more modular, nimble financial products uh, within a digital digital environment. So you see, across the board, we are seeing really a huge push and a huge tailwind into, into fintech, into the portfolio, which brings me back to the comment that we made 90 seconds ago or so in saying that if we were 10 years ago, we probably would be exiting these companies now. But there is so much potential in all of them, so much interest and so much available money to really make huge multi-billion dollar companies out of them that probably our, our average holding periods are getting extended and, and happily so. We are, we are very excited about the future that's to come from this portfolio. I see. Understood. Understood. So before we wrap up, I just have two uh, fairly easy questions or more general questions. Everybody around the world had a tough time last year and still this uh, pandemic is going on. For some people, that meant they saved some time on commuting. So maybe they uh, were thinking about also how to improve themselves and took some courses or read some books. So for some people, it meant actually more work. But nevertheless, my question is, what is your favorite business book that you'd like to recommend and uh, again 
in line with the theme you mentioned before, we need to digitize irrespective of the medium itself. So it could be also an ebook, whether it's Kindle or something else or an audio book, doesn't matter how you got it. But the point is, it's something which is not just news, right? Something that could be seen as an evergreen that you can always pick up and, and get inspired by. Yeah, over the years, I read a ton of business books and and i'm a big reader of non-fiction i've always been a big fan of business books and i think one book that every investor should have in its library and and preferably in, in paper form to pay homage to the writer are the essays of warren buffett despite it not being a oh. vc book per se it's almost a philosophy a bible to investing and no matter how old the essays the learnings out of them can be applied to a lot of contexts in business and in life so i i, I love that and if i were to pick something that's more VC relevant and published in, in, in the more recent years. Personally, I absolutely love The Hard Things About Hard Things by Ben Horowitz, fellow venture capitalist, great entrepreneur, and, and a great writer, in my opinion. Yeah, great stuff. As I said the other day, this is the number one recommended book on this podcast. Yeah. Ever, I ever since I, I started asking this, it's, this is the fourth time. So it's brilliant. I, it's, it's, I, li- I listen brilliant. to it as an audio book, to be honest. But as I said, it doesn't really matter how you got it. It is great. It's something different, right? Maybe a lot of these uh, business books are also done as memoirs and quite celebrations of the founders and not really talking about the difficulties and the kind of struggles on the way to the top. And this one is different. It's honest where it talks about also the near-death experiences, right? Yeah. In terms of business, obviously. Great stuff. Maybe going forward, I'll have to ask about favorite uh, non-fiction movies, documentaries (laughs) or something. (laughs) But anyway, so thank you so much. And so before we wrap up, what's the best way to reach out to you or to HV Capital, find out more? And what kind of people would be the best to reach out from your perspective? Yeah, this is a question I get asked a lot. And the easy answer is that our profiles are very public. You can go on our website, all the emails are there, all the processes, what we look for, et cetera, et cetera. The reality of VC and, and bigger funds is that we are inundated. Each and every one of us is inundated by incoming inbound interests and, and pitches and requests for meetings, catch-ups you name it. There is definitely a benefit to having a warm intro of some sort to get at the top of that queue. And it can be through through common friends, it can be through common business partners, or in a world in which we go back to events and meetings, it can be us having met at an event and then you following up with an email. In the absence of that, and if all that is not possible, it I think paramount to spend those five minutes and make sure you're right to the right person within the fund. So have a look at the profiles, have a look at the portfolio companies that each of us is has in its portfolio. And if you're sending a fintech pitch, then by all means, send it to me. But if it's a company in the travel space, then don't send it to me, send it to the person that's uh, an expert in travel. And definitely what, what you shouldn't do is send a uh, hello sirs or ladies and gents email to the whole fund and and we see a lot of that with 20 people in cc everyone from front to back office because that shows that you as an entrepreneur didn't 
put the time, the effort to even look into our fund. All right. Understood. So thank you very much and good luck to HV Capital. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Voice of Fintech podcast. If you haven't already, check out also voiceoffintech.com where you will find all the episodes and additional resources related to the podcast. You can also subscribe to Voice of Fintech on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or any other podcast app that you like. If you have any suggestions on the topics or guests or how to make this podcast better for you, please email us at info at Happy to hear from you. Thank you.